Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. So this episode is brought to you by NorthPass Business. Against small businesses and startups, they often work with limited resources and reduce costs wherever possible. While this is sometimes practical, cybersecurity is one area where you don't want to cut corners. Creating strong, unique passwords for your company's accounts is a surefire way to defend your business from data breaches. However, with the number of personal and work logins we use daily, it's very easy to get password fatigue, leading to reusing the same passwords across accounts. So NordPass Business is a powerful password manager for organizations that removes the difficulty of generating and remembering strong passwords for you and your colleagues. Additionally, it allows for you to integrate single sign-on with your company's Google Workspace accounts and effortlessly create groups to share sensitive information across teams and projects. So see NordPass Business in action now with a three-month free trial by going to nordpass.com forward slash Pantera and use the code Pantera. This episode is brought to you by Basecamp. So Basecamp is a project management and team communication application that has been around for about 18 years, and it's used by thousands of companies today. Basecamp is all about simplicity. It is designed to give you and your team the tools you need to get work done. They have message boards, to-dos, file storage, chat calendar, and much more. Basecamp is built to help you in getting out of your way and let you focus on what matters. Again, you know, like when you're adding a bunch of people, there's a bunch of files that need to be shared. You need to be effective. And that's where Basecamp comes in. They actually are from the guys that brought to you 37 signals. And really, they help in making decisions simple and also effective. So go to Basecamp. Their pricing is simple and they give you the all, all really the features in a single plan. No upsells, no upgrades. Go to Basecamp.com forward slash dealmakers and try Basecamp for free. No credit card required and cancel at any time. Thank you, Basecamp, for sponsoring this episode. All righty. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Dealmaker Show. So today we have a very exciting founder, you know, a founder that uh, really understands, you know, what building and scaling a company, you know, is and the full cycle. He's been on both sides of the table, also an investment banker, you name it. So he's been around the block. So I think that we're going to find this episode very inspiring. So without further ado, let's welcome our guest today, Eric Satz. Welcome to the show. Alejandro, great to be here. Thanks for having me. So let's do a little of a walk through memory lane, Eric. So how was life growing up in a place like Cleveland, Ohio? Well, it, you know, it's interesting. I, I wish I could say I grew up on the mistake by the lake, but but I didn't. I, I was born in Cleveland. Uh, my dad was um, my dad was in the service, and my mom was in uh, in school to to become a dietitian, and then we we quickly relocated to Anchorage, Alaska, where my where my sister was born, my only memories of of Anchorage really are are picture driven. And then from Anchorage, we moved to Miami, Florida, which is where my dad grew up and which is where I grew up. So I'm a huge Hurricanes fan. I'm a huge Dolphins fan. It's been difficult to be fans of both of those teams uh, over the last basically 30 years. Uh, but we can we can still be hopeful. And uh, you know, so growing up in Miami was fantastic. 
what I would say is it kind of grew up quickly. I, I wouldn't have it any other way. It was just a, an absolutely fantastic place to, to learn a lot as a kid. And obviously, I mean, you've, you have actually, you know, moved quite a little bit throughout your journey. I mean, you know, just like when, when you were growing up or, or even after, you know, in your life, you know, you've moved quite a bit. So, so I guess, you know, during those, you know, those times that you were moving, I mean, it was like a new life, new friends. I mean, how do you think that has helped you to really deal with uncertainty with the unknown? So I, I, I think you kind of go, got to go back to my high school days. When I was in 11th grade, uh, my parents got divorced. Um, and I live with my dad and my sister live with my mom. I spent a lot of time, let's just say, uh, running my own life <laughs> and, uh, you know, take it, taking care of, uh, taking care of things. And, and so I think that that set me up for when I, I, I then moved to, uh, New England, I went to school at Amherst college and, it was interesting. I, you know, for most people, going to college is this explosion of freedom in terms of how you spend your time, who you spend your time with, what you eat, when you eat, when you sleep, how long you sleep. Um, with the with with the exception of the sleep part, because I did go to to my classes uh, in in high school. Um, going to college wasn't a huge change for me. Because uh, just living with my dad, I, I had all kinds of uh, freedom that way. And so go, going to college was just sort of the next step. It wasn't, uh, it wasn't an exponential change. And um, already having familiarity with building my own schedule, I think, was incredibly helpful that way. And so just being open to kind of whatever comes at you at the time and being able to adapt uh, and make decisions, I think all of that sort of was foundational from my high school days. And, and that just has carried over. And obviously in the high school days, you know, you also got your first job. So uh, how, how was that and how do you think that translated also, you know, to what you were going to be getting in, in college as well? Yeah, so it, it, it was actually more than my first job because I would say it's really my first entrepreneurial experience. So I sold frozen lemonade out of an unair conditioned van in Miami, Florida. And the business model, uh, we like talking about business models. The business model was very simple. Uh, the more I sold, the more I made. So. I, I got 60% of every cup that I sold, right? And so when you get in the van at the beginning of the day, you, you, count, all, you count up all, all your cups. And at the end of the day, uh, you count all your money and you count the cups that you have remaining. And, and that's sort of the inventory check at the end. And you know how much you made. And so I would go out in this van and I would have to play with the route driving all over Miami, right? Trying to understand what the most profitable route would be. And of course, uh, I like to optimize. And so I would always look for that route, which would allow me to sell 
out all my cups in the shortest period of time. I didn't want to stay in the unair conditioned van for uh, for any longer than I needed to. But then, you know, in terms of translating that to college, I bought the newspaper, the college newspaper distribution business for the New York Times and the Boston Globe when I got to Amherst. And, you know, kind of the same thing, getting out in front of the Amherst community and selling the newspaper. In fact, my wife says that's how she met me. I don't remember that. We actually didn't, quote unquote, meet until later when we were living in New York and we met on an airplane. And thank goodness she doesn't really, uh, she didn't really get to know me when we were in college. That, that, that definitely worked in, in, in my favor. So, you know, going to college, I, I built this newspaper business and then that uh, translates for me anyway into going to Wall Street on, on, uh, in New York City in the in the early 90s and that's sort of the the initial progression of my career if you will now now that, that's an interesting you know combo that you had going on too because when you were in new york and you were an investment banker you also had your own coffee shop i mean that's quite a quite a combination well to be fair i actually left investment banking to to start my coffee shop okay but when I was an investment banker, I found the inspiration for the coffee business. There were there were these uh, three guys who had moved from Seattle to New York, and this was this was before Starbucks was in New York City. This was before coffee uh, really took off like we know it today. And um, these three guys had moved from Seattle to New York, and they opened a small coffee bar. Uh, across from DLJ 140 Broadway downtown, which is where DLJ was initially, now they're Midtown. And uh, I would go in at least twice a day to to get coffee. And at one point, and I got to know the guys, and at one point they said, hey, can you help us understand what's going on with our, our finances? And the long story short is their finances were a mess, but I had sort of, I I had the coffee bug. And so I, I went out to Seattle and I actually met the owners of a business called Caravalli Coffee. And Caravalli Coffee had, um, had been the wholesale division of Starbucks. And so when Howard Schultz bar- bought Starbucks, there was this separation between the retail side and the wholesale side. And the folks who bought Caravalli uh, had the wholesale side. And so when I went out to Seattle, I, I, I met them and I'm going to say they convinced me to go ahead and take the leap of faith. Did the convincing wasn't really hard by the way, but they convinced me to go back to New York, quit my day job as an investment banker at 24 years old and start a coffee bar in New York city and have them be my supplier. And so that was, that was my entry into the coffee business. And Alejandro, that was also the first time I ever really failed at anything. And, you know, sort of within 18 months, I was I was closing the co- I got all things. I got all three things about retail wrong, Alejandro. Location, location, location. I get I got them all wrong. Uh, I, I had the wrong place. And as they say, you, you either succeed or you learn. So what was the lesson learned for you? I, I think the the. The first lesson is what you just said, which is that you actually learn way more from failure. 
Oh yeah. Then 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 you do from success. You know, if you if you experience success early, you think you're so smart and you're so good and you know exactly how to do something. I think it completely skips over the role uh that luck and timing play in most people's and most corporations success. And so that initial experience of uh just true failure had me step back and really analyze uh my decision making process and where things didn't play out the way I expected it to play out. And so you know, I can Monday morning quarterback a a, a whole lot of things and I I really think that that first foray into true entrepreneurship where I had raised money from other individuals and then to have to tell them that I lost it all, that really set set me up for everything that that came later. And uh to to know that it is uh it is way harder than it than it looks. And and if you by by which I mean entrepreneurship is way harder than it looks. And if you're trying to be an entrepreneur because you want to be your own boss or you want to make a lot of money or whatever it may be, that's likely not going to end well. You really have to be embracing um, this lifestyle, uh, which is full of uh, stress and ups and downs and and absolute uh, unexpected twists and turns Yeah, because you're mission driven. And there's a purpose to what it is you you're you're doing, and if you don't have that, I don't think it's going to work out really well. Yeah, it's definitely not like what you read on the magazines eh, or what you see in the movies. That's that that's for sure. Now that, that's because Alejandro, the the things that we read in the magazines or see in the movies, that's like you know point one percent of all of entrepreneurship. Like you got to written the the real movie is the grind. And the, and and the up and the down and the sideways and and the unexpected and um, I want to see that movie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we would definitely both associate with that one. Now, now in your case, uh, you definitely, obviously, you know, you had this first experience, but then Curinix. So what what happened there with Curinix? Great question. So I was an investment banker out in San Francisco working for a company called Donaldson, Lufkin and Jenrette, which many people probably don't remember because DLJ was purchased by CSFB, Credit Suisse First Boston. I think it was probably in 2000. And I still w will tell you that DLJ was the greatest investment bank ever. Uh, but while I was um, an investment banker, and I was an internet investment banker, and I was working with Ken Pulowski and Gotti Meyer, who who would become my co-founders in a company called Currentx, which was the first online foreign currency exchange business. And it, it's a funny story because we were at the printers. Ken and Gotti were the COO and CEO, respectively, of a company called GetThere.com, which DLJ would take public and and then sell. And Ken, who was a total entrepreneur and a, just a, a really um, interesting and, and bright individual, we, we were in 
what you refer to as the printers, which is where you would go to have your prospectus, your S1, uh, printed and created for distribution to um, potential investors. And so we're at the printers, and it's really late at night or really early in the morning. And Ken says to me, hey, I have this really great idea for, for the next thing. And so I said, okay, you know, what, what's the idea? I have no idea what the idea was, by the way. I was like, yeah, it's okay. I said, he's like, what do you mean? I said, I have a much bigger idea. And so he said, what's your idea? And I said, well, online foreign currency exchange, trillions of dollars changing hands every single day. It's a completely tilted playing field. The banks have all the advantage. The corporations are totally in the dark. The, the bids move literally every second, unless you have three hands and three phones where you're talking to three banks at the same time, it's impossible to compare bids uh, because they move so quickly. So he looked at me and he said, that's a really big idea. I said, I know. And that, that was the beginning of CurrentX. And uh, eventually State Street, that was 1999, by the way. Uh, State Street would eventually buy CurrentX in, I think, 2006, 2007 for a little over $560 million. And so uh, despite the up and down of uh, the internet industry and lots of uh, insider conflict, it, it turned out to be a really good deal for everyone. And that was eight years. So obviously during those eight years, you know, as we were talking about it earlier, you know, many ups and downs too until you got it to that successful exit. So I guess the question here that comes to mind is, as you're looking back on that on that journey with Curenix, what would you say are the three main ingredients that allowed, you know, for such a successful outcome? Uh, perseverance. But, but I want to be clear about something. I wasn't running Curenix. Yeah. Uh, you know, I actually kept- Helped with co-founding it. Yeah, so my idea, if you will, and and help raise the initial rounds of financing, uh, but then was just an observer, and um, but regardless, perseverance was the key to that outcome because uh, you know the talk about the stuff that uh, people don't see and and the stuff that really tries one's gut. <laughs> Uh, it, you know, as being close to shutting the lights two or three times, right, and and just locking the door behind you, uh, which which definitely happened and happened for a lot of internet companies, by the way, in the in the very late '90s, early 2000s, and and so to get the right people in the right seats, uh, and and to be able to grow it at the right time. Yeah, it's really kind of hard to draw that up on on the on the board and say this is this is the play we're going to run, right? You get you have to be aware of the changing circumstances and and have an ability to adapt to the environment in which you're operating, and and so long as you can do that, and you have the uh, ability to persevere through the hard times. You, you have a good chance. I'm not going to say you have a great chance. You have a good chance of finding a good outcome. And uh, we got lucky. What can I say? We got lucky. Well, luck, as they say, is preparation meets a, 
what is it? Preparation meets opportunity, no? Yeah, so, so uh, it's, where, it's where hard work meets opportunity. I like to add a third vector to that, which is that? Uh, hard work, opportunity, and again, awareness. You have to be able to recognize when luck is sort of staring at you, oh, right? Yeah. And, and being able to, to, to move the pieces in a way that's going to enable the outcome that you're looking for. So we'll get back to our conversation in a minute. But if you're an entrepreneur or a sales leader, you want to listen to this. Let me tell you about Wingman. Not, no, no, not Tom Cruise. Wingman is a conversation intelligence tool that helps folks like you coach and scale up their sales teams really fast, really easy. Now, I know you know scaling is not just about hiring. Getting the team up to speed can be the real speed bump. Well, Wingman can help you in getting that. It lets you build call libraries with game tapes relevant to every cell situation, complete with highlights and notes, and it's asynchronous. I mean, repeatable sales training engine. Not just that, Wingman even helps during sales calls with contextual battle cards and monologue alerts. The great thing about Wingman is that it plays nice with all your existing tools like Salesforce, HubSpot, Zoom, Teams, and Google. It even syncs up with Slack so you don't have to log into your CRM all the time for deal updates. So head over to trywingman.com to give it a try. That is T-R-Y-W-I-N-G-M-A-N.com. It's just the wingman yourselves needs to really predictably beat revenue targets quarter after quarter. This episode is brought to you by Partner Hero, which provides customer service outsourcing that's built for the needs of scaling and high-growth startups. They offer flexible terms, fast onboarding, and the ability to scale teams quickly. Perfect for fast-growing business. I mean, let's face it, you know, you're all startups. You know, it's time for you to really stop trying to do absolutely everything. You need to get yourself out of the supporting box so you can actually focus on growing your business. So again, Partner Hero is flexible. They have quality assurance. They have offices around the world to really provide that help and support that you need. And if you're ready to bring in outside customer support help for your startup that feels like it's part of your existing team, then check out Partner Hero. Head over to partnerhero.com forward slash dealmakers to book a free consultation with their solutions team and mention that you heard about Partner Hero from Dealmakers and they'll waive the setup fee. So let's talk about uh, also creating your luck because in your case, you know, you went to Nashville to create your luck, you know. I did. So you go to Nashville and then you start the next company, which is Plum Good Food. Uh, and also you combine that too with, uh, with, a, with a venture capital firm. So I guess the question that I have here is, what did you do with Plum Good? And then how was that combination with the VC firm as well? Yeah, so the VC firm came, came after, came at the end, but Plum Good was an online organic home grocery delivery business that we had built up to about a $5 million business. And, you know, it, it was certainly new to Nashville, but having moved from San Francisco where we were customers of Webvan, and uh, other fruit and vegetable box delivery businesses, none of that existed in Nashville. And one of the things that I understood about 
Webvan and Home Grocer. And for those who do remember Webvan and Home Grocer, you, you also know they imploded, uh, famously so. Um, because uh, those are, they're really logistics businesses. They're not technology businesses. And uh, I had the benefit of having watched that um, prior to moving to Nashville and understanding that we were trying to build a, a distribution and a logistics business with groceries being the product that we were distributing. So so we built that to about a $5 million business. Actually, it was voted greatest thing to happen in, in Nashville, uh, which at the time, by the way, I don't think was that hard to do. Uh, today, much harder, Nashville being... Uh, a place that everyone recognizes and 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 not just as music city and the healthcare capital world but also now like bachelorette party central but in any event 2008 hit by which i mean lehman brothers imploded bear stearns was uh was bought i think i think who bought bear stearns jp morgan maybe i believe so and the the economy just I like to call things the way I see it. Uh, the The economy went to crap, right? Yeah. And um, it, it was just, we just we got upside down, and uh, people could no longer make this the this uh, trade between time and money, which is required in the online grocery uh, delivery business. Meaning um, now, all of a sudden, who people who uh, had been gamefully employed lost their jobs. They had time to go to the grocery store uh, and and they didn't need to pay for home delivery. And they also didn't need to pay for organic food, which was uh, certainly more expensive at the time. This is way before Amazon buys Whole Foods, right? And um, so in, in 2008, the, the market just tanks our customer. But we're literally losing 30% of our customer base month over month at the end of 2008. Wow. And uh, so I make the decision to go ahead and shut Plum Good down and take what money we have left and redistribute back to the uh, investor base and just said, this is not going to work right now. I'm not sure. I'm not sure it's ever going to work, but certainly not going to work right now. And so, you know, if, if I really think about this and I think about Coffee Bar, uh, Kernex, Plum Good Home Grocery Online Delivery Business, and then uh, Tennessee Community Ventures, which is the fun that 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 comes after it. All of these things actually come together in what I'm doing at Alto, and how and why we created the business, and and what our mission is, which is to unlock uh, access to alternatives for all. And so there there's there's a heavy retail component to that because this is. This is the end user. This is the consumer, the client's money, right? And they want to be able to talk to someone or email with someone or chat with someone. And you kind of learn that in the coffee business. You learn that in the grocery business. You don't learn that in investment banking. You don't learn that in venture capital. But what you do learn in investment banking and venture capital is finance. And and companies that are raising money and what makes for a good investment. And so we have a real responsibility to try and educate uh, our certainly our client base, 
um, but also the population as a whole, because we're trying to change the fate of retirement in this country. And, and currently, the outlook is not good. Like tens of millions of people living uh, in poverty by, the, by 2050. And so how do we change that? What, what, what can we do to help alter history as, as it looks today? And as they say, you know, ideas, they take time to incubate. You know, they're like they are dormant and you don't even know that they are there. So it sounds like for you, that incubation took many, many years, you know, many different experiences. And as they say, institutional, you know, transfer. Right. So it's it, so knowledge transfer. Sorry. So meaning that you are learning something from a certain segment and then from another one. And then it's like you're implementing them into a newer segment. Right now, in your case, you know, you were doing the VC firm after Plum Good. Uh, and then obviously it came Alto. At what point did the Alto uh, concept or, or, or the initiative become so clear to you that it was time to go at it again and to execute on it? Yeah, so it was actually 2013. So I started TNCB, Tennessee Community Ventures, in 2010. And then in 2013, a funny thing happened, which is I opened my mail. So I, I opened mail like, once a quarter, maybe twice a year, like I hate it. And uh, I was getting ready to invest alongside uh, TNCV in a particular portfolio company. And it just so happened that I opened my mail and I opened my IRA statement from Fidelity. And I had this light bulb moment because I had totally, first of all, I totally forgot that I had this account. And then when I looked at the balance, I was like, wow, this is the money I should be investing in these um, private portfolio companies. Uh, the reason being uh, really twofold. The first is IRA savings is long-term money. Uh, private company investing is a long-term game. And so from a duration matching standpoint, it made perfect sense that I would use IRA money that I shouldn't touch until I retire to invest in early stage companies that likely would not have uh, an exit or, or achieve some form of liquidity for on average, let's just call it 10 years. So that, that was point number one. Point number two was there are huge tax advantages to investing with retirement savings. And so if it's a traditional IRA or traditional SEP IRA, uh, it's tax deferred. If it's a Roth IRA, it's uh, you know, tax-free when it comes out because you've, you've paid your taxes up front. And these are um, uh, higher risk, higher reward type opportunities. And so uh, if, if you're lucky enough to get it right, you have this huge tax advantage on the returns from your investment with your IRA. And so I connected those two things with what I was doing. And I literally went to Google. I didn't. So the only problem was I didn't know if you could do that. I didn't know if you could invest your, your retirement savings in a private company. So I went to Google and, and this is 2013. And I literally typed into the search box, invest, uh, invest IRA in private company. And Google said it was, it, it, it was legal. You know, it, it didn't just say it was legal. Like it, it, it returned a bunch of articles. I read the articles and it was like, okay, you can do this. 
So I called my my financial advisor who was at a larger brokerage firm. And I said, hey, this next investment I'm making, I'm going to make out of my retirement account. And he said, okay. And I said, well, I'm going to send you the uh, the routing, the routing number and, 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 and the account number, if you would just send it from my IRA account. And he said, no. And I, I said, what do you mean? He's, he said, we're not, you can't make that investment from, from our platform. I said, why not? It's totally legal. And he's, his response was basically in a nutshell. Yeah. But if you lose all your money, you're going to sue us and we're not going to do any diligence or homework on this company. So we're not, you can't do it here. So I said, what do I do? He said, I don't know. Now, he has a complete conflict of interest because he wants me to keep my money with him at, at this firm. So I go back to Google, and this is where I discover the self-directed IRA industry. So long story short, Alejandro, it takes me like 10 weeks to make what should be a 10-minute investment. And it, so like any other entrepreneur with this personality disorder, I, I, I make two more of these investments. And uh, the experience just gets worse. I use different custodians each time. I figured I had just chosen the wrong IRA custodian the first time to do this. Uh, it turns out it was a systemic issue, at which point I asked the age-old question, is this a large enough problem for me to solve? And it turns out we've got $30-plus trillion sitting in retirement accounts today with a tiny percentage invested in alternative assets. And if you compare that percentage, probably less than 2%, to what high net worth individuals and insta professional institutional investors invest in alternative assets, that's going to range from you know, 20% to, if you're Yale's endowment, 80%. And so why are we stuck at, why is everybody else stuck at 2% or below? And, and the answer is, it's just too hard to do. It's too expensive. It's too complicated. And so I kind of thought, well, you know, if I can solve for those things, if I can do for alternative IRA investing, uh, the phrase we, we coined, if we, if, if we can do for alternative IRA investing what uh, TurboTax did for self-filing, then, then we, can, we can build a big business. And so... In 2016, I had had enough uh, uh, of just trying to do this with other people. And so I went out and I raised the money to, to start Alto. And then we, we launched in April or May of 2018. And for the, people, for the people that are listening to really get it, what ended up being the business model of Alto? How do you guys make money? Yeah, so a, a few different ways. We have an annual account fee. So whether you have a traditional IRA, SEP IRA, Roth IRA, there's an annual account fee, and it's based on the level of uh, technology services that you use at Alto. So the, the, the annual fee is either going to be $100 or it's going to be $250. And I don't, I don't want to go into the details of that right now. And then every time you make an investment, there, there's a, a transaction fee. On the on the opposite side, and that's all for what we refer to as uh, traditional alternatives. So, real estate, private equity, venture capital, private companies, uh, private credit product, artwork, uh, real assets. On, on the other side of the business is a, a crypto IRA business, and and that does not have an account fee associated with it. 
but we do earn 1% per buy or sell. And so um, those are the existing uh, revenue streams. What you're going to see in, in early 2023 is the launch of the Alto marketplace and uh, where we will we're finishing the broker dealer process right now. And so revenues will actually be earned by introducing the demand side to the supply side, which is the way finance works traditionally. And that's really where kind of my investment banking background comes into play, right? So uh, typically when a company raises money, uh, they they pay a percentage of that raise to the folks who, who help them raise that money. And that's the role that Alto is going to play uh, going forward, but on a technology platform scale basis. Now, talking about your investment banking experience and now coupled with your VC experience too, I mean, when you were, you were alluding to it, you've raised money for, for Alto. So how much capital have you raised to date for Alto? And then also, how did you think about engineering the capital raises? Yeah, really good question. So today we've raised 70 million for Alto over, uh, so we completed our series B round, which was 40 million uh, a year ago, December of last year. And, you know, we've still got $30 million in, in the bank. Uh, how do I, how do I engineer? So I, I have a, I have a theory that I, that I used to share with my clients when I was an investment banker. And that is when investors offer you capital at a fair price, uh, take it. <laughs> so we never really went to market trying to, we've been really fortunate. Um, and I think it's been a combination of our business and business model, as well as just industry times. Um, but we never really went to market and 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 in search of investors, it was sort of uh, folks who were interested in what we were doing reached out, um, and they would uh, express a desire to learn more and express eventually express an interest to invest. And once that process began to snowball a little bit, then uh, we would reach out to to other investors in the community to to seek additional participation. And that that's how the rounds came together for us. I you know, I think a combination of of lucky and in the right place at the right time with the right business uh and certainly the the overall industry dynamics and economy uh didn't hurt. So for the people that are listening to get an understanding on the scope and size of Alto, I mean, anything that you can share in terms of number of employees or anything else that you feel comfortable sharing? Yeah. So we're, we're just shy of 100 employees. We've got um, about $1.2 billion in assets under, uh, we say assets under administration, not assets under management. We're, we're not an asset manager. We're a custodian. Uh, and we've got about 30,000 clients. And then what I will tell you is that our team is completely distributed and remote. We're in, I think, 30-something states. And how, how, how do you go about the fully remote operation? Because, you know, nowadays a lot of people are talking about, like, oh, my God, you need to be in the same room if you want to build culture. And I find that COVID, you know, has really put a lot of perspective, you know, on all of us. Uh, to really understand that that's possible, that the FaceTime thing, you know, is not needed anymore as long as people are able to really, you know, uh, produce. So 
How, how, how did you guys go about really building culture around that remote uh, workforce? I think culture is top down. It's not bottom up. And I think we're also fortunate in that we were only 20 something people at the time that uh, COVID hit. And so we really grew up in this uh, era of remote work. And we had to quickly understand what it would be like to onboard new teammates in a remote environment, how to uh, introduce Alto to them, how to make them feel part of the team, and how to communicate our culture and our expectations and our values. And so we're, we were really fortunate that we began to do that when we were still a relatively small size. And so just extending that uh, along the way, there have certainly been lessons learned. And so whereas I would tell you that I don't believe being in the same room every single day is required, I do believe being in the same room from time to time is an absolute necessity. And, and I say that because chemistry is built in the barn. And in order to really trust the people that you work with, this is my opinion, in order to really trust the people that you work with, to enjoy the people that you work with, to like the people that you work with, to, to want to help them succeed, not just you succeed, but and then also the larger enterprise, you gotta break bread. You gotta um, sit across a table. You gotta be able to, I, I mean, Zoom is great. Don't get me wrong, right? Um, it's better than a phone call, but it does not replace sharing a meal or being in the same room. And we see it all the time, this ability to get up to the whiteboard and just the exchange of ideas that can happen in real time in a room among a larger group of people than two people. It's just something that can't be re recreated, in my opinion, via, via Zoom. And so uh, we bring the leadership team to Nashville, which is where we're headquartered. We bring the leadership team to Nashville once a month. Uh, we bring uh, teams to Nashville every quarter. And then twice a year, we have an all-company uh, gathering. And it's not about, sure, we work during those times, but as important, if not more important, are the dinners that we have when people are here or the lunches we have when people are here or getting a canoe or kayak and going out on the river or getting an ax and <laughs> doing ax throwing or uh, wh whatever it may be. It's uh, that sort of that team building exercise that just can't happen over Zoom. And let me ask you this. If you were to go to sleep tonight, Eric, and you wake up in a world where the vision of Alto is fully realized, what does that world look like? Uh, well, first of all, it means that every individual in America has the ability to choose what it is they want to do when they, sort of, when, when they reach retirement age. And everybody's choice is different. Um, but having the ability to choose 
is is what I'd refer to as financial freedom. And, you know, I, I don't see myself ever not working. Somebody else may still have that vision of, you know what, when I turn 65, and by the way, I don't think it's going to be 65 by the time these people get there, it'll probably be 75. When I hit retirement, I want a lemonade with lots of ice and a chair on a patio. And that's great for that person. That That's not what I want. But this ability to actually choose, right, to, to have help people achieve financial freedom, financial uh, sustainability. That's our goal. That That's our mission. And we believe that investing in alternative assets is one of those tools uh, that can help you along that path. And I say that because portfolio diversification is this free tool available to all of us that has demonstrated higher returns with lower volatility. Now, for so long, alternative assets have been locked away for most people, and only the people uh, who were high net worth individuals had a key to that closet. And, and so what we're trying to do is to, to take the, actually just take the lock off the door, forget the key, take the lock off the door, pull everything out of the closet, put it out on the table, and then help you understand the questions you should ask prior to making investment and what those uh, answers may look like should you ch should you choose to make an investment and again you know what what i find appealing from an investment standpoint you may not like and we all bring our own biases uh and experiences to to bear but actually you started off this question with what i think is the single most important thing which is can you sleep well at night knowing you made x y or z investments and and if you can't, that's not a good investment for you. But if you can, then what happens happens, right? Uh, but you you want to use a level of reasonableness in your own investment thinking and strategy, and it's our goal to help you figure that out. And you've obviously now been doing this for a while, you know, building and scaling companies. So. If I was to give you the opportunity, Eric, of um, going back in time, I put you into a time machine and perhaps I, I put you, you know, on that moment where you were thinking about getting into the adventure world, like starting your own business. I mean, maybe like before the coffee shop, you know, rodeo. And you had the opportunity of sitting down with that younger Eric and giving that younger Eric one piece of advice before launching a business. What would that be and why, given what you know now? This is not new. And, and this isn't mine. This is me actually taking the advice of others that I have both listened to and, and read. And that is uh, hire slowly and fire fast. Um, I'm good at the fire fast part. Uh, I need to, you know, I, I, I ought to have hired more slowly in key positions over time, no matter what the business. And I, I feel like I'm just now, uh, just now beginning to learn, not just learn it, but actually embrace it. And I, and I think at the end of the day, when you 
uh, carve back all the technology and all of the product. I don't care what business you're in. It's all about the people. And so getting the people right means you're going to get the company right. Like better people make better companies. I honestly think it's that simple. I fully agree. And I love that. So, Eric, for the people that are listening that want to reach out and say hi, what is the best way for them to do so? Uh, well, first, I, I highly encourage you to go to altoira.com, A-L-T-O-I-R-A.com, uh, and, and open your IRA account and begin to invest in alternative assets. Uh, but, you know, I'm on Twitter and I'm on LinkedIn, and uh, please do feel free to, to reach out there. Amazing. Well, Eric, thank you so much for being on the Dealmaker Show today. It has been an honor to have you with us. Alejandro, it's an honor to be here. Thanks for having me, man. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.